time, we want to dismiss our children uh, down with Mrs. Maisie. They go to learn more about Jesus. We're grateful for our kids' ministry and how they serve us and our children as they grow in their relationship uh, with Jesus. Um, before we enter into the message, uh, I want to do a little Q&A with you guys. I need, I need to check on something a little bit. So uh, i got a question for you. I want you, to, I want you to raise your hand if you like muddy feet. Oh, we've got a few. Okay, yeah. How about moldy basements? How about homeowners? you like mold in your basement? There are a few that like mold in their basement. Okay. Here's one. Here's the test, okay? The test is, do you like poison ivy all over your body? <coughs> Nobody? I didn't think so. Well, listen, this is a creative little plug for something we got going on in May. On uh, Saturday, May 2nd and Saturday, May 16th, we're going to do some things around here to get rid of some muddy feet from our parking lot. We're going to do some things around here to get rid of uh, some moldy basement situation. We've got some uh, landscaping and grading to take care of as uh, we kind of steward this new building. And, uh, it, you know, one motivator, I think, is we've got some poison ivy growing on some fences. And I thought, man, I really don't want Silas rolling around in that. So... I'm quite motivated uh, as well to get out there and do some work. So May 2nd, uh, Saturday, and May 16th, uh, mark your calendars down. We're going to have some fun. I'm sure there's going to be massive quantities of donuts and coffee and other yummy foods. So we will feed you well, but we'll also go to great lengths to take care of this new place God's given to us. Does that sound like a good idea? Amen. Right, so I could have manipulated you uh, and, and, and uh, set you up for kind of one of these things where I made you all volunteer, but I decided not to do that. So we'll just go on the honor system. So we'll see you then May 2nd and also on May 16th. Looking forward to that. So today we continue uh, in our series in the book of Exodus. Uh, we kind of hopped around in our sermon series of late like an Easter bunny, uh, trying to find a home. Uh, we come, came into this new place, uh, had the opportunity to to uh, remind ourselves what our vision is, cast our hope uh, for this place, uh, not talking about the building. Our hope for this place meaning the community in which this building uh, sits. So uh, we had Holy Week and, uh, of course, appropriately so, uh, meditated on and focused on uh, Christ, what he did, and what he secured for us in his death and resurrection. And so today I'm excited because we're continuing on in this Exodus series called Redeemed for Worship. Now, many of us may know the story uh, about Exodus uh, and just the, the simple terms that God brought his people out of slavery, out of Egypt. But I think, uh, as we've seen already, uh, uh, seeing how God revealed himself to Moses, how God judged the Egyptians and through the plagues saved his people, and now, uh, after going through the Red Sea, entering into the wilderness, we're almost to the, the point of Sinai where God reveals the law and, and all of that. So we're right here in Exodus 17. I, I want you to turn there with me. We're going to read a shorter passage, which is nice, uh, given some of the longer passages that we've had. But I think God wants to continue to shape us and teach us about what salvation really is, about what salvation is from and what salvation is for. And so, again, we find ourselves in uh, the wilderness with the Israelites, 
in chapter 17. So let's open up there. If you have a Bible, it would be great for you to follow along with us. We believe this is God's Word, His truth, and He is indeed speaking to us in these words uh, written down by Moses in this book. So if you do not have a Bible, by all means, we'd love to give you one uh, before you leave today as just a free gift. And also, uh, if you'd like, you can follow along here on the screen uh, that we have provided for you. The point is that our attention is on the Word of God. Listen to what Moses says, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Mirabah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? This is God's word. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have you ever found yourself asking the question, how did I end up here? For whatever reason, thinking through that question, a memory popped into my head about when I was a child. See, with great joy and anticipation, we would leave this God-forsaken place called Syracuse in the middle of winter. We would get in the 1985 Chevy Blazer, a red one at that. And we would travel from here all the way to Florida for escape. You can understand why. We're from Syracuse. We know why we travel from here to there in the middle of winter. My dad, being the animal that he is, the dude that he is, worked a 12-hour shift. And many a year, we would just hop in the car at 7.05, right when he got out of work. And we would drive 24 straight hours. And again, like most men, for whatever reason, we're not big fans of letting the wife share the wheel. So he drove the whole way. Yeah, that's my dad. Okay, but in the middle of the night, me, sleeping, doing what I do best, nothing, uh, laying there sleeping, uh, woke up kind of in one of these shock moments. I don't know why, I just kind of woke up quick. And all of a sudden, I look out the, the, the windshield, and you know what I see on my way to Florida? 
in the middle of the night, lights blazing at the Washington Monument. And I couldn't help but say to myself, what are we doing here? Dad obviously took a wrong turn, right? Or fast forward to another time in my life uh, when I graduated from seminary. Again, a time I was really excited to be done with the books, and uh, I was looking for a ministry position. I was looking to find a job for the first time in my life, trying to find a job. And so I was looking here and there. I looked at a job in Pennsylvania. I looked at a job in Boston. And finally, the Lord kind of broke our heart to come back to the Syracuse area and do that eight-month process of trying to find a job, I found myself in the middle of a small village looking up into the clouds uh, after one of my messages outside during an ecumenical worship service, saying to myself, as I'm trying to escape what felt like 1952, saying to myself, how in the world did I get here? What am I doing? I must have taken, what? A wrong turn, right? What am I doing here? You can imagine how the people of God, the people of Israel feel in 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, encamped at Rephidim. How did they get here? <coughs> right? They had left Egypt, Goshen. They came from Ramesses. And they uh, traveled kind of down into the Sinai Peninsula. And they uh, went through the Red Sea, right? And then now they're at the southern uh, tip of the Sinai Peninsula at this place called Rephidim. And they're wondering, how in the world did I get here? And yet at the same time, they know exactly how they got here. The same reason how I got to that rural community. And guess what it was? The Lord had led his people there. God was behind it. So they're asking the question, how did we get to this place? Well, the Lord had led them there. Yes, they had the command of the Lord. They were told where to go, what to do. Stage by stage in the process, God was guiding them with the fire at night and the cloud by day. The Lord was leading his people to this place. That's how they got there. And look at what happens. They got there, and what? There was no water for the people to drink. What an interesting situation. They are faced with a life-threatening situation. Tons of people, no water. Right? And what happened? How'd they get there? To all these people to a place with no water. You tell me, how'd they get there? The Lord led them. The Lord led them. Yes, his saved people. I find it interesting that if you go back in the passage, you see at the end of Exodus 15, they're singing, they're excited, they see that their enemies were defeated, and they are now free from Egypt for real now. And they're so excited. In the next verse, in chapter 15, says this, verse 22, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. Do you see that? That God saved people in a moment of celebration, all by the leading of God, through his servants, takes his saved people right into what? 
the wilderness. All the way here, now we see to a place that has zero water for them to drink. And the text says that in this dry and desolate place, we see how they respond, right? They quarrel, verse 2, with Moses. They quarrel with him, uh, and they test the Lord. They're frustrated. They're angry, right? The text goes on to say that they grumble against Moses, different terms. They grumble against Moses. They demand water. Give us water to drink in this dry and desolate place. And then verse 3, they, they question God. Why did you bring us here? Why did you take us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us? You see the reaction in this moment. And in this moment, we see that in this place, remedy, and as commanded by the Lord and led by the Lord, that this is not just a situation where we see that we have a water problem. Right? This is a window that the physical reality that they face is, is a window that we can peek in and look and say, this is the core issue of the human heart. Right? We don't just see ourselves in a dry and desolate place. This is a dry and desolate people with dry and desolate hearts before God. That this moment at Rephidim gives us a window where we can look in and say, this is how the human heart responds to temporal issues and difficulties, isn't it? So the people of Israel, easy to point the finger at here. But I think it is for us a, a window which we can look at our own heart and begin to think about the ways in which we deal with dry, desolate places which seem to be, in the moment, life-threatening situations. We don't have what we feel and think that we need in the moment. What do we do in response to that? Even though we know that the fire is there, the cloud is over us, and that the Lord Jesus has led us there. What do we do with that? So much for singing God's praises in chapter 15, right? Now we're testing him, we're quarreling with him. We are putting on display the biggest poison, the biggest problem, and it's not the fact that there is no water. It's the fact that they have a dry and desolate heart. That's what God is doing here, isn't it? He's bringing his people <coughs> to a place that they would see that Egypt is not their most powerful enemy. Guess what it is? Their own sin. Their own sin. So this is a window for us to see the human heart. The dry and desolate place brings the people face to face with their dry and desolate heart. The parchedness of their throat shows the, the, the poison that's in their heart. And we see what it looks like here. I'm, I'm sure we could describe the dry and desolate heart in many ways. But here we do get an explanation of what that looks like. The, the dry and desolate heart responds to difficulty, to the dry and desolate season, moments, situations of life by quarreling with God. 
What does that word mean? Well, it means that we're responding to present difficulty with dissatisfaction with God. One commentator really pointed out that this is about the fact that these people are dissatisfied with God. To quarrel with him is, a, is an inner agitation, frustration. Really a, could be seen as a, as a legal term that is calling God out in anger, in frustration. This is not fair. You brought us out of Egypt. You are not doing what you said you would do. You are not providing or caring for your people. We're calling you out, God. Very much calling God to account for what they perceive to be his lack of care or concern with their temporal needs. They, in this moment, in this place, show that they are dissatisfied with God. In many ways, the people of God, as they quarrel, are saying this, I'm not happy with you, Lord. Did you ever find yourself in a place where you're dry and you're desolate, your, your temporal circumstances, where there seems to be no provision, no water, where you're saying, I'm not happy with you, God. I'm frustrated. That's what they're doing. It's an angered version of, this is not fair. The text goes on to say that they test the Lord. Right? They, they, they put God to the test. What does that mean? It means that there's this demanding, this demand from the Lord out of a sense of entitlement to God's immediate provision of their temporal needs. We believe that we are entitled to God's immediate provision of our immediate needs. And so we respond in such a way to manipulate Him in some ways, to do exactly what we think he should do right now. We test him. We put him to the test. We, in some ways, put uh, on this, we're calling for his evaluation. If it's real or not. And we're demanding something from him. Doug Stewart says that testing God is demanding or expecting him to do something special for you because you think you deserve it. That it's rightfully yours. He goes on to say that this situation is somewhat presented as a way that they manipulate God. Can you imagine trying to manipulate God? Isn't that to some degree what religion is? Are, are, are we believe that if we act in a particular way, that God is now in some ways manipulated to respond in a particular way back to us? Right? That if we follow his commands, if we go to church, we give a particular amount of our money, we vote for particular leaders in office, and we don't do certain things, that that in some way is going to manipulate God's favor for us. Right? That's manipulating him. But that's not what our salvation and our relationship with God is about at all. We're not putting him to the test. We're not trying to manipulate him. I think about what's taking place here, and I compare it to a, a moment in the car where we're on our way uh, back from some uh, kids' event that we basically spent the whole day making happen, and one of my children might say something to me like, uh, Dad, can we stop at Friendly's and get a milkshake? And I say, we did this for you, we did this for you, we did this for you, we did this for you today. We poured out blessing, and you know what? The answer is no. <laughs> Not tonight. And the response could easily be, you don't love me. 
never do anything fun. Why does the master manipulator say something like that? Because they learned it from their daddy. No, but why does the master <laughs> manipulator say something like that? Why? Because I believe that if they say something like that, that it will motivate me to change my mind, change my reaction. They want me to act in a different way than I already have, right? That's what manipulation is. So they test God, they manipulate Him because they believe they're entitled to something. And I think for some of us, this could be a helpful distinction. Because we're, we are in Scripture invited to approach God and to trust in Him and hope in Him and to ask from Him. Right? But there's a difference between expectancy and entitlement, isn't there? Like that is, God <coughs> promised to take care of me. He promised to provide for my need. He promised to always be there in every and all situation. And so because I've heard his promise and I trust in his word, I'm going to go to him and beg of him and say, God, please provide for me. That's someone who's expectant. But the person that demands and calls God out and tests him is someone who does not understand grace at all. Who's moved out of the realm of grace and into the realm of expect, uh, uh, entitlement. Not only that, they question the Lord. They become skeptical of his motives in salvation. That's what the dry heart does. It questions God's motive. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? You trying to kill us? Right? The, the reason God saved you from Egypt was to kill you. To take away your joys. To take away your life. I think we do that. I think when God leads us through seasons in life, and we look back on his salvation, maybe we have a, a, a false understanding of what his promises are really all about in this life. A false understanding of what a true blessing is. That we go to God and we say, you know what? Why, why, why would you even bring me out of that place? If you're going to put me in this place. You trying to kill me? Do you not have my interests in mind? Do you really care about me? That's what we see taking place here. They're quarreling with God. They're testing the Lord. They're questioning his motives. And implicitly, they're forgetting. You know, fire, cloud, Red Sea, the ten plagues, death of firstborn, frogs, gnats. You go, the last six months, year, I mean, you talk about people who have been immersed in the power, the presence, in the might of God. And now they're calling him into question in this temporal moment because there seems to be no provision of water. Have they not forgotten the Lord and what he's done? I think often that our hearts become dry and desolate before God because in the midst of struggle and difficulty, we have simply forgotten past provision, haven't we? We have forgotten where God uh, has brought us from. We have forgotten the moments where he has miraculously provided 
where we have seen his hand orchestrate particular events, we have simply gotten spiritual dementia. We forgot. Forgotten the Lord's grace. Ultimately, the reason they're dry and desolate is because their heart does not trust God. They doubt the Lord. And isn't that really the, the ultimate form of spiritual dryness, desolation? We don't trust God. We don't trust Him. Is the Lord not among us? He's not here. God is not in this. Does He really care? There's a doubting that drives all of this. These people have been removed from Egypt. They have been saved. They have been redeemed and set free. But the way that they have walked through the wilderness, through the difficulty, has shown that they are anything but those, or anyone but those who, who place their faith and trust, their utter reliance on the person, presence, provision of, of their Lord. They don't trust the Lord. And for many of us, that's what these kind of seasons and moments and experiences do. They put on display in the adversity and the difficulty the fact that we really, at the end of the day, don't trust Jesus over every aspect of our lives. It's like that whole argument, like, what do athletics do? Do they build character or do they display character? You should say both. Right? Suffering, struggle, dry, desolate seasons of life. Does it build character or display? Both. Both. So we see that's what's taking place here. God has got a purpose. He's bringing his people stage by stage through the wilderness. They've not arrived yet to the promised land. And in this moment, he's also putting on display what? Two things. He's putting on display their dry and desolate heart. The fact that at the end of the day, they don't trust him. No matter how much power, provision, and presence he provides for them, they don't trust him. But he's not just putting on display the dryness of the human heart. He is not just giving us a window through which we can look into that human heart. He is also, as we see in this passage, giving us a wide open door to walk in, to sit to rest and enjoy and live inside of God's miraculous power, His imminent presence, right? And His abiding provision. Look at what takes place as I try to move along. So Moses cried to the Lord, verse 4, What shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. You could spend another 10 minutes there. What's going on? Moses his response is not innocent. The rest of the scriptures point out that he also uh, profaned the holy name of the Lord, even in his response. Not going to go there, but interesting. Verse 5 says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. You shall strike the rock. And the water shall come on it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so, right, in the sight of the elders of Israel. Love this, of course. 
One of the most amazing things here that we might miss is that he says, take the, the same staff, take the staff in the hand, in your hand that, that you struck the Nile with, go grab that, and you get it. And you're going to strike the rock, and water's going to come out. I love that, because what does that immediately do? It brings us all the way back, right? It brings us back to the beginning of the plagues. The, the striking of the Nile was the first plague, where God changed the water into blood, okay? And so in that moment, God confronts what they consider to be their source of life, Egypt, the Nile. And so we're brought all the way back. You take that staff that you struck the Nile. You're going to take that staff and you're going to strike the rock and water is going to come out of it. I love that. It shows that the same God that saved them through judgment is the same God that is providing for every need in the middle of nowhere. It's the same God. It's the same. One of the most frustrating things that I've gone through as a homeowner, someone who has a cell phone, who needs electricity and power and gas and all that, are these moments. I guess I better call the utility company to remain nameless. So I called the utility company, okay? And the utility company says something like this when I call them. Thank you for calling the utility company. And they say, press one for sales. Press two for service. Press three for installation. Press four for payment. Press five for payment. Press six for payment. Press seven for payment. Press eight for payment. If you need this again, press nine. To hang up, press start. Like, just all these options. Really, the most options are so that we can pay, right? So you press two, because I need service. And you get to the service guy, and the service guy says, oh, no, 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 that's not my department. you got to call this number and select option four to get the commercial consumer whatever line <coughs> for your state. You get my point. There's no one person, not one phone number, not one option that can actually deal with any issue. Customer service. Right? But I love this. Because as I read this, I recognize that it, when it comes to the provision of our need, guess what? There's only one option. Right? We call one phone number. We press one option. If you need freedom from the enemies of God, press one for Jesus. If you need hope in a hopeless circumstance, press one for Jesus. If you need peace for your anxious soul, press one for Jesus. If you need guidance and wisdom to go through and walk through each stage of your life, press one for Jesus. If you need a miracle because the situation has stacked itself up against you and you feel like your life is being threatened, your person is in jeopardy, guess what? Press one for Jesus. If you need the forgiveness of your sin because you feel the weight of your guilt, guess what? Press one for Jesus. If you don't know what to do, what, what decision needs to be made, guess what? All you got to do is press one for Jesus. 
you need water, you need food, you need clothes, you need shelter, you need friendship. That's one for Jesus. There's only one option. There's only one option needed. Jesus. The same God that saved us from Egypt is the same God that's with us in struggle. I will stand before you at Horeb. Text says. The same God that saved us is the same God that is with us in struggle and is the same God that what? Provides for every need. It's the same God. We don't just go to Jesus for forgiveness of sin and a hope for a ticket in heaven. We go to Jesus with everything. He's got it taken care of. We are not to test the Lord who is worthy of our trust. Right? We're not to test the Lord who is worthy of our trust for he is what? With us. In every circumstance. He is guiding us through every season. He is providing for every need. Don't miss that today. That's the cure, the antidote for the poison in your dry and desolate heart. Christ. He's with us. He's guiding us. He's providing for us. It's Christ. You say, what do you mean it's Christ? Well, 1 Corinthians 10 goes on to show that this isn't just a window to the human heart. It's not just a doorway to walk in and live in and rest in the presence and provision of Jesus. But this moment is also a shadow of the real thing that was yet to come. Like the, the, the Old Testament is but a, it's a shadow a, a, a foreshadowing the fullness. Christ is the fulfillment of this. He is the fullness of God's presence with us. He is the fullness of God's guidance of us. He is the fullness of God's provision for our needs. Christ. Verse 1 through 4, Paul tells the Corinthians, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. And all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Pointing back to Paul, to miracles. To Rephidim, and saying the rock from which these people drank finds its fullness and fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the presence of God. He is the provision of God. Jesus. No one else. Press one for Jesus. You know, and I think it's fitting because... You look at a situation and you think, how can the striking of a rock bring forth water? I mean, you know, you look at it and you think, okay, there's no lake, there's no pond, there's no river, there's no spring, there's no well, there's nothing. All we have is a rock. How is God going to provide water for his people? And so they call God out. So it is 
unthinkable, unimaginable, unexpected to think that water could come from a rock. And it is unthinkable, it is unimaginable, it is unexpected to think that the cross can give life to the dry and desolate earth. That death of the Son of God, His blood spilled, could provide life. It's unexpected, it's unthinkable, it's unimaginable to us. Which is why we pursue in so many other people and places and things satisfaction in what the world might offer to us, and we do not find ourselves in a place where we can see Christ as God's supply and Christ as our satisfaction. It's Christ. <coughs> He's God's presence. He's God's provision. And I can't help but think as well that for this it was a redefining moment. For the people of God. Look at what 7 says. He called the name of the place Masa and Mirabah. <coughs> well, wait, I thought it was Rephidim. What? There's a new name for this place. Right? The place don't, didn't define the people. The people what? Define the place. Find that interesting. This place is renamed. It's renamed for quarreling, contesting. It's a memory of the dry and desolate heart. The fact that the people of God simply do not trust a God who is worthy of it. They tested him. When really he was deserving of their trust. I wonder if this is a redefining moment again. I wonder if another place and another person redefines who we are. Let's go Gotha. That's where Christ hung in our place, the place of the skull, it says. The place of the skull became for us the moment in human history where Christ was our payment, our substitute, the sacrifice that would bring life and salvation and forgiveness to all. Could Golgotha, of all places, the place of the skull, be for you a redefining moment. That is, we're no longer people who quarrel and test the Lord. We're people who look at Jesus and recognize that He is our rock. He is our provision. We trust in Him. We rely upon Him. And now His pain, His death, is that which springs forth and wells up from even an unexpected source, a river of life. That's Jesus. Don't, don't miss that today. Don't miss that. And some of you aren't in dry and desolate places. Some of you are in a worse place. You know what it is? A satisfied place apart from Christ. Some of you are in the midst of struggle and difficulty, and you're crying out to God, but why? And you see hope in this passage that God is there with you, and God is providing for you. You have not need to test Him, but to trust Him. But some of you are doing a-okay. Things are good. You're saving money. You're moving up the corporate ladder. You bought a new house. Things are good. You had a great date night with your wife. Your kids did not yell at you yesterday. Things are decent. That's a worse place. When you think you're good, 
and you find satisfaction in the temporal provision of your need. And not satisfaction in the one who is indeed your rock. <coughs> so turn from satisfaction in this world. Turn from your dissatisfaction in the moment. And trust Jesus today. Turn from your sin. 1 Corinthians 10, 6 says that this was all written so that we would not pursue evil. We would not love evil. <laughs> right? Like they did. May we turn to Jesus. May we trust in Jesus. And may he be our joy and satisfaction. No matter what situation our life brings us to. Amen? We should not test the Lord who is worthy of our trust. For he is with us. He is leading us. And he is providing for us. Amen? Let's pray. <coughs> confess to you, O God, we are by nature dry and desolate that we are in deep need of the rock, Christ, to be our provision. We're thoughtful of John 4, where you look at the woman at the well, and you say, if you come here, you get water here, you'll be thirsty again. No matter how much you drink of it, you'll be thirsty again. But if you come to me, and you ask me for living water, I'll put a well inside of you, <coughs> It will spring up. Put my spirit in you. And it will spring up. And it will immerse your soul. It will saturate you. And then you will never thirst again. And I pray that we would cling to that hope today. You are our rock. You are the living water. We do not test you. We trust in you. God, I pray that if there's someone here that is in the midst of dryness and desolation in their spirit. Pray that you would speak to them, love them, provide for them, be near to them. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.